Um, so it is my pleasure to uh, introduce our next session, which is our keynote address for the day. And that is Dr. Margaret Merger. Dr. Merger is a senior lecturer at Curtin University in Western Australia. And it's wonderful that she managed to make it over here to be with us. Her research explores the social and environmental influences on literacy acquisition and the position of reading and books in the contemporary world. Her research findings in literacy explore the role that teachers, librarians and parents can play in supporting children, teenagers and adults to become lifelong readers. Dr Merger has written a substantial body of peer-reviewed research papers in this area and we've also published her in Synergy and FYI, I think. And she has led a range of mixed methods research projects exploring these issues in local, national and international contexts. Dr Merger is the author of the upcoming book, Reading Engagement for Teens and Tweens, What Would Make Them Read More for Libraries Unlimited in America. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Margaret Merger to give the keynote address entitled Supporting Reading Engagement, Myths, Strategies and Plans. Thank you, Margaret. So it's my pleasure to be here today to speak to you all um, about something that's probably pretty close to your heart, how we can increase our students' reading engagement. And I know that um, having come a little bit early and, and taken the opportunity to have a chat with as many of you as I could get my hands on, that many of you were doing really interesting and active things in this space and really sharing your passion for books and reading in very effective ways. So what I'm wanting to do today is not treat you like a bunch of empty vessels. You're very knowledgeable, very experienced, and will bring to bear a wealth of um, understanding in this area already. But what I am hoping to do is build on uh, the capacity that you already have with really current research that's been um, undertaken in this space. So I'm talking 2017, 2018, really recent stuff that you might not have had time to get your hands on and present it to you in a way that will not be boring. So I would do my level best then. That's what my kids always say when I'm walking out the door to do a keynote somewhere. It's like, well, Mum, as long as you're not boring, it'll be fine. All right. So um, it looks like we've lost the screen. Sorry if that was me. <laughs> oh, great. It's back again. All right. So what we've got here is um, what we're planning to do today. Yep, we're good. <laughs> Fantastic. Is you've got a wealth of ideas in the first circle. Um, I'm kind of coming from the second circle space, which is the pre presentation of the research. And then um, I know that you go into your schools and you go through processes of planning as a whole school to really improve engagement in reading and literacy in your school. You're advocates in your schools, promoting new knowledge in the area. And you're also part of an ongoing iterative consultation process in many cases, where you work with all the other teachers, the executive, um, all of those with an interest in the library, but also more broadly literacy in general, so even support staff to ensure positive outcomes for your students. And then hopefully once you've gone through this process, this ideally trickles down to practice in the English classroom and beyond, so ha having whole school implications. And then the little stick figure at the end is the student. So I'm, we're hoping that through this process that we go through together, that there are ultimately outcomes for the stick figure at the end, and that stick figure gets really, really into reading. 
So today, um, in order to get that stick figure up and running, we're going to talk about why reading is important. You all know it's important. But sometimes you need to be able to wave some things in people's faces that are quite specific around that benefit. So we're going to talk about the importance of reading and reading engagement. I'm also going to tackle a couple of the persistent myths in the field. So often um, in our energy to be advocates um, and also even researchers can sometimes inadvertently implement practices that are very, very well-meaning but are not necessarily for the benefit of students. So we're going to talk a little bit about those. Then I'm going to be talking about whole school planning for reading <laughs> engagement, um, taking it uh, beyond the English classroom and beyond the library to a whole school responsibility some research-supported strategies that hopefully you're already using in your school, and if not, the research I'll be giving you today will enable you to hopefully argue effectively for the implementation of these strategies. And finally, some obstacles that have emerged in the recent research around the implementation of these strategies that might give you a bit of pause, particularly as I know that we're here from a secondary background, and sometimes we're not sure what's happening at primary school level. And my research um, has found that there are some quite troubling gaps that you might not necessarily anticipate. So hopefully you'll find that section interesting as well. All right, so I know that many of you are here hungry for the data and hungry for the research. At the end of the presentation, I will give you um, a link to my ResearchGate page. And if you are far away and cannot see the screen and are thinking, oh no, I'm going to miss out on the link, you can always come and grab me later on and I'll give you one of my business cards which has the link on it. If you go to that link, you can get all of my research for free basically um, by signing up to a free account and just going through and requesting any papers that you need. And I know that um, I get quite a lot of these requests from uh, librarians and schools because then they print off the paper and they, they use it as a weapon. They go into school and then they're like, this is why silent reading's important. So I invite you to do that. Um, there's quite a large volume, so it's quite a hefty weapon these days. Okay, so I've, um, since 2012, completed six substantial studies in the reading engagement area. I've worked um, with teenagers, I've worked with children in upper primary whose findings will still be relevant in this context. Um, I've worked with um, children in the younger areas of school, but I've also completed a recent project looking at the role of teacher librarians in schools as literacy advocates. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the session. So firstly, jumping in around why reading is important and why reading engagement matters. So we all know <coughs> from our position in everyday life that more than ever we're engaging with written material because we're online so often and so are our students. So more than ever because of the data consumption, um, the written data consumption that we consume on a daily basis, the literacy skills we have and the reading skills we have are associated with power and opportunity. It's undeniable. Then we know um, from recent research that the literacy attainment of a country or a nation is associated ultimately with its level of productivity and its possibility for economic opportunity. We also know that literacy performance, and which is related to reading engagement, is strongly related to academic and vocational outcomes in school 
and that our literacy levels are associated with how much money we're going to get paid in our workplace. So when we're looking at it, we know that across the board in large international studies, the relationship between strong literacy skills and opportunity for our students is very, very strong. We also know that when we don't use these skills, when we're not engaging in regular reading practice, they don't just remain static. Quite similar to when I stop exercising, sadly. I lose my stamina pretty quickly and I have to drag myself off the sofa and actually do something. So it's the same with reading. We know that particularly in relation to research that's come out of the US that looks at hiatus and reading over the summer vacation period, there is a cumulative, compounded, negative impact on literacy. We do not remain at the level that we're at. We actually start backsliding over time. And that cumulative effect over several years actually leads to quite a large gap for those students in the US who have access to books and libraries and reading opportunity over the summer period and those who do not. So, we can apply and extrapolate these findings more broadly to the knowledge that if it's not something we exercise, we do not remain at that level. And this is something it is imperative we communicate to our students, particularly if you are in the boat of many teacher librarians or librarians and find that um, access to your library is curtailed for your students after year nine. It doesn't mean that your year 10 students are gonna stay at where you got them at the end of year nine with all that effort um, getting them reading in the, in the library, all the effort um, collaborating with the students. Schools still need to support that access beyond that point and you could make a robust argument for that based on this US research. We also know that we have to situate this reading as a lifelong process. So sure, it's really handy you know, for our academic and vocational skills, but I think every one of you will be able to think of at least one student that really doesn't care that much right now about their academic performance and is not really that bothered about what they become when they grow up. They're just kind of going with the flow, up, updating the Instagram, just living the life, you know, living the dream. So in order to reach these students and show them the benefits of reading, we can really talk about the power of effective communication in winning wars online. So how to effectively debate and discuss and negotiate when an issue comes up on Twitter, you know, and you want to come out on top, well, if you've got the language, if you've got the persuasive power, you're going to win. So building it in and thinking about more broadly what will reach the students um, in your area will obviously be very important. So the reason why we're often talking about this literature and literacy issue and in relation to reading engagement is that we've actually found that the amount of our Australian students that are coming in as low performers on international testing is actually growing over time. So from 2000 to 2015 in the International Piece of Literacy Studies, we found that um, there's been a gradual incremental increase in the amount of low performers and we've got nearly a fifth of our um, teenage students now coming in under. Um, for us that kind of look at the NAPLAN reports, um, particularly when we're looking at band five as the national minimum average when we're looking at year nine, we're thinking that sounds very high, Margaret, because, whoa, when we look at who's coming under in band five, it's a smaller percentage than that. But the reality is our national uh, minimum standard is set very, very low and is not reflective of international minimum standards. So in reality, um, and again, I, I need to kind of qualify this with, I do have 
misgivings about being overly reliant on literacy testing, high-stakes literacy testing, when we're talking about you know, ascertaining where our children sit at literacy. But it is a useful prompt to make us realise that this is something we need to look at a bit more. We also know that more than two-fifths of our Australian adults have a literacy profici uh, proficiency that makes it difficult for them to function in everyday life, which is more than seven million adult Australians. So if we want to avoid this being an ongoing issue, we need to be really active in arresting these um, literacy concerns. So we all know that reading is a foundational skill, but almost on a weekly basis, I receive an email from either a teacher librarian or an English teacher that is trying to implement a whole school literacy approach that puts reading engagement in the forefront. And I'm told, well, the maths department has said, show us the benefit, or well, the, the executives of science lady says, you know, why aren't we doing science in English? And this constant pushback um, against accepting that literacy and reading needs to be treated as a foundational skill. Well, simply look at the word problem. Okay, so here we've got a word problem that um, it says, Pamela has 85 pieces of candy. She gave four pieces each to six friends. How many pieces of candy does Pamela have? So in your head, you're probably calculating that. But for our students that get this wrong, who have low literacy, we do not know if the problem is numeracy or literacy, because literacy is that gateway mediator that enables us to engage with the numeracy problem. And it's the same across most of the disciplines, if not all. If we don't have strong literacy skills, it's going to significantly affect our ability to perform <coughs> in these areas. So one of the interesting things that's coming out of Canadian research at the moment is this association that's being found between the reading of fiction books in particular and the fostering of perspective taking and empathy. And also we know that um, the more we read, it, the more the protective effect is for prevention of cognitive stamina issues into old age. But just coming back to this fiction book empathy association, I know that we're always talking about wanting to meet general capabilities across the school, but I'd like to point out that the reading of fiction books is not just associated with meeting the uh, literacy general capability, especially bearing in mind what we know about this Canadian research that is becoming quite a robust body of research. We can also, through reading of fiction, tackle the critical and creative thinking, the personal and social capability, ethical understanding and intercultural understanding and literacy. So it's a bit of a across everything kind of winning score moment. When we get the fiction into the classroom, we know that we're meeting not just the literacy general capability, but we're going a lot broader than that and a lot deeper. There's also been a recent 2018 review that suggests that the re regular reading is associated with positive mental wellbeing, which the first speaker talked about a little bit in relation to her own context, but is also substantiated by broader research. So why reading engagement really matters? Typically, um, when we talk about reading engagement, it's, it is characterised in many different ways with lots of different definitions. But for the purposes of us as practitioners, we're thinking about reading engagement as having positive attitude, attitudes towards reading and engaging in reading frequently. So we know that typically keen readers read more often. It's not always the case. So I've spoken to some students who actually love reading, but because they're working three jobs, they really find you know, difficulty having time to actually sit down and read, which is where our responsibility as schools to provide those opportunities for independent reading is just so important. But typically there is an association between those two aspects. We know 
we need to always be thinking not just about fostering reading skills in our students, but fostering that will to read, that um, engagement. Because we know that if we do that, they're more likely to read with greater frequency, giving them greater exposure to the benefits. So here are one of, one of the many benefits. This is from research by Cunningham and Stanovich in the US. And it's independent reading minutes per day in relation to words per year. Those of you who cannot see the slides because you're sitting very far away, if a student reads for around 21 minutes per day, they're exposed to 1,823,000 words per year. But the, the student next to them that reads for 65 minutes per day has 4,358,000 words that they're exposed to over the year. So clearly, the difference in exposure to vocabulary in relation to the amount of reading that we do is really significant. All right, so we have an issue because we know that our reading engagement levels, not just in Australia, but more broadly across the international sphere, are actually in decline. And particularly as students move through the years of schooling, we find that their reading engagement starts to drop off. So now that I have laid it out around our literacy benefit of reading engagement, I want to jump into the three um, myths. And there are many myths, actually. I've written a couple of papers on the myths. Um, but I just pinned it down to three today because I cannot keep you all day. <laughs> so the first one is that boys are naturally not readers. Look at these stunning fellows here. They're my sons. <laughs> the guy in the orange shirt is 16 years old, so he's in year 11. And the guy in the red shirt is in year 9, that's Sam. And they like to read. They read very different books, typically. So if I tried to give Sam the books that Gabe's into, he might be a bit like, yeah, nah, I actually want to read about zombies, please. So I have to be aware that um, just because they're boys doesn't mean they like the same thing. Um, but yes, they're absolutely keen readers. So if you have ever met a boy that likes to read, whether it be Harry Potter, whether it be really anything, automatically the idea that boys are naturally not readers is disproven. So the reason why we talk about boys being naturally not readers relates to this idea around gap talk. And that's when we're looking at the difference in literacy attainment between um, boys and girls in performance in high stakes testing, both in Australia but also internationally. And there the issue that we have to bear in mind is that the gap between the attainment of boys and girls is actually a lot smaller than the gap within the gender. So our high achieving boy and our low achieving boy, the gap between them is actually way bigger than the gap between boys and girls. So even though the gap is worth talking about and worth paying attention to, we shouldn't get super hung up on it. If we're looking at improving outcomes for struggling readers or disengaged readers, we need to be looking at all of them, including our low achieving or disengaged girls as well. So we also know that in addition to there being a literacy um, attainment gap, there's also a reading engagement gap, unsurprisingly, considering what I talked about at the beginning around the association between reading frequency and literacy benefit. But what we know is that we cannot argue that this is biological. We cannot because research suggests that we are socialising little boys and little girls differently. So, for example, um, a Three Nations study performed by Baker and Milligan found that parents are simply reading to their little girls more than they're reading to their little boys. So they're being taught from a very early age that reading is a thing for little girls and not so much for little boys. So if we're conveying that to us, um, if that's been conveyed to our students before we even get them, we need to be really aware 
of the importance of avoiding perpetuating this idea. The other thing that came out this year, we had a paper come out where we found that um, for children in upper primary, even though girls were reading more often than boys, they were receiving more encouragement to read. So for us, it wasn't necessarily very logical. You would expect the, the effort to be applied to boys, but it's almost like we, we, we sit back, not you, I shouldn't say we, people <laughs> sit back and think, well, okay, boys, you know, not really into reading. It's not a thing for boys. It's a thing for girls. No, please don't do it. It's bad. So the other thing we need to look at is this idea that young people prefer to read e-books. And the reason why this is a serious issue is because um, for some of us in Australia, it has led to every single paper book being removed from the library around the assumption that digital natives prefer to do everything on screens, even though the research suggests that that's not the case, even though the research suggests that digital natives have highly varying competencies within the area of digital literacy, which I'm sure as li librarians you've encountered yourself uh, with some students in year seven still struggling to save a Word document. So we know that there are um, already issues there when we're talking about you know, generalising and stereotyping and saying all students are like this. But the research that we've conducted has found that where students have access to devices and paper book, they still choose to read paper books in most cases. Not all. We have some students that love reading on their e-readers. Um, but in general, it's too soon to say that young people prefer to read in e-books and therefore we should get rid of all of our paper books so that we've got more room in our library to create a glorious information centre. Keep the paper books in there at this stage. The other concern we have is even where every single paper book's not being removed, we have a resourcing issue where um, money is being put into the e-books e and less money is being put into the paper books, which means fewer books are being purchased in the form that our students still prefer. So if we're wanting to encourage students to read, ideally we need to be investing the majority of the resources in the kind of mode that they still prefer at this stage. So again, um, avid readers, less than 25% of our teenagers that are reading at least two times a week are reading frequently using an e-reader. And children in upper primary, this is really um, an interesting study that we did. So these were children in year four and year six. We found that not only did they still prefer to um, read in paper book form, but the more devices they had, the less likely they were to read. And mobile phone ownership was particularly associated re with reading and frequency. And this was um, actually picked up by the media and featured on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald as, wow, this is amazing. But as librarians, you probably would have thought, yeah, we knew that. <laughs> no surprises there. Thanks, Margaret. Move along. Um, so again, here I've got the daily readers in their upper primary um, section. As you can see, that um, many are just you know, either in the never or sometimes category, um, and this is where they read every single day. Only, uh, less than 5% um, of students who read every day and who had an iPad or Kindle were using it, so it's quite low. All right, the final myth I want to tackle today, and there's no chance you're going to be able to read this wonderful thing that was posted on my conversation feed, so I'm going to read it out loud to you. So this is the idea that boys don't like fiction. And I did a piece on this for the conversation recently, and I was so disappointed when this comment was deleted by the moderator because I typed out my reply, and then I pressed submit, and I got the response, sorry, the comment you were replying to has been removed. And I was like, why, moderator, why? Because I read a really courteous, but like I thought it was just very thoughtful reply. But anyhow, this was the comment, and um, it's from a guy called Steve Taylor. 
More feminist rubbish pushing boys to enjoy things that girls enjoy. Encourage boys to read by getting them to read non-fiction because boys enjoy reading non-fiction. This isn't a social construction as the alt-left claim. Boys are inherently drawn to the hero's quest, knights, dragons, battles, and good versus evil. I knew when I read this out loud to you, librarians, you'd be like, oh, light bulb moment. <laughs> when I read it to some of my friends, they'd be like, yeah, okay, that's what, but he's talking about fiction. Dragons aren't real. <laughs> so this is where it, you know, this is where it kind of comes in. I think that, even though I haven't done research into this area, I think one of the reasons why, even when I interviewed some boys, they would say, oh, yes, non-fiction, non-fiction. And when I asked them what books they liked, they'd say, oh, The Treehouse, oh, you know, Harry Potter. I'd be like, oh, they're, they're actually fiction texts. You know, you almost don't want to ruin their, um, their lives by letting them know they're not real. But um, I think it's a misunderstanding around genre. Um, so I think this may be one of the reasons why we say boys don't like fiction. But what happens as a re result of this is the OECD, um, which is obviously an influential research body that performs international research, has um, advocated for this American author in, in one of their um, position pieces. And this American author claims to create boy-friendly non-fiction, not dealing with troubling emotions, so that we can you know, just, just keep those feminine emotions out of it, people. Um, and what really blew my mind when I read this piece, I was like, okay, so they must have evidence that boys prefer nonfiction. So I went into the little Excel spreadsheets that they have kind of tucked away, and I found that in their own research, boys still prefer to read fiction over nonfiction. The gap is smaller than the gap between girls, which is typical, but they're still preferring to read where they have a choice, fiction over nonfiction. So come on, OECD. Read your own research before you start advocating um, and, and kind of perpetuating these gender stereotypes. So my own research backs it up too. The International Study of Avid Book Readers found that typically both men and women um, will choose to read fiction um, or either. Um, the WA Upper Primary Sample was really interesting too and I want to do more research in this area because as you can see the difference between boys and girls' responses here is really small. So it makes you wonder if it's a compound, a compounded effect of socialisation that makes the gap kind of get bigger as, as humans move through um, the years of their lives. But I'd like to do more research in that area. All right, so these myth, uh, myths are problematic because being read is not biologically determined. I worry about reducing access to students' preferred reading mode. Um, and also this idea... As I mentioned before, we can see the research suggests that fiction books are more strongly associated with literacy benefit than the reading of other text types at this stage across international studies. And also, as I previously mentioned, we've got those awesome Canadian researchers that are doing the bulk of research around the benefits of reading fiction for developing those beautiful empathy and perspective-taking aspects. So if we're telling boys, boys, here is the blue box. This is your special box full of trucks and snakes because this is what you like because you're boys. It's not just going to kind of make them think, oh, okay, well, this is what I have to read, you know, start reinforcing gender stereotypes. It's also potentially reducing their exposure to the text type with most literacy benefit and reducing their exposure to the text type that builds those beautiful aspects of perspective taking and empathy. So why would we want to do that? Yeah, I don't think it's a good plan. 
All right, so moving on to the next one, this is where Margaret gets to stop talking for a moment and you guys get to start talking for a moment because what I'd like you to do in your small group <coughs> is have a bit of a chat and it's going to be a brief one so you'll have to like talk over each other and battle to get, um, get it in but hopefully it's a chat we can continue at the end of the session as well. I want you to have a bit of a think and a discussion in your group about what you think a policy plan or agreement document for whole school literacy should contain what sorts of ideas and forces it needs to realistically be responsive to, and also whether your school has a literacy policy plan or agreement document, and why, why not? Have a chat. Okay, thank you everyone. So, just going around and snooping in on your conversations while I lurked behind you was very interesting. Um, it was interesting to see that um, some people were saying things like, well, we might have one, but I've never seen it. Um, and others were um, talking about the pivotal role that they played in the creation of the document at their school. So that's quite similar to some recent uh, research I've done with teacher librarians that um, some, in some cases, teacher librarians have been really central and librarians have been central to the process of the development of these documents. And in other cases, they've been really very peripheral. Um, and interestingly enough, I'm going to talk about an analysis that we did of these policy plan and agreement documents shortly. Many of these documents had no mention of libraries at all, even though they had school libraries and they were literacy documents. It's quite incredible. Um, so if you don't have one already or if you're in the process of revising it, I would really, really strongly encourage you to lean forward and get involved um, early and often in the development of these policy plan and agreement documents. This is really important that the library and your role sit at the heart of these documents. All right, so when it comes to creating the, the literacy policy plan and agreement document, which I'm going to call a P-pad from now on. Um, so when we're creating a P-pad, um, that, that will really cover this. Um, there's no one way, one best way to do this. So I'm not going to stand here and tell you we all need to follow Margaret's glorious dock points and that will take us off into the horizon of happy reading engagement forever. No, because you're all from different contexts and you're working in different kinds of teams and so all I can do is offer some suggestions that you may want to bear in mind based on research we've done in this area. So. In November of 2017, myself and my colleague Veronica Gardner thought, well, it's time to see what's actually happening in this space. And so what we did is go online and try to source as many policy plan and agreement documents that we could get our hands on across Australia that were publicly um, posted on school websites and the like. So this um, led to us gathering a grand total of 34 documents, PPADs, and um, some of these were from primary school um, and some of them from, were from whole schools and some were from um, secondary schools. As you can imagine, there were definitely more primary school, whole school policy plan or agreement documents than secondary ones, which is a concern because we actually probably need it more than they do. Um, so that we had three questions. We were really interested um, because we were kind of aware of the kind of neoliberal near, near trend toward, toward measurement in our schools and testing. So we wanted to see if reading engagement was factored into these plans and agreement documents at all. So we wanted to see if, if it was factored in at school, at home, and where it was factored in. What were the strategies that were being identified as schools um, as, as privileged and important to be enacted in a school and classroom level? So we found that across 34 policy plan and agreement documents, 10 schools 
supported reading engagement in their policy plan or agreement document of 34. Um, and that half of those schools only employed one of the strategies in their policy plan or agreement document. The winner school, and everyone always says, oh, who's S20? I can't tell you. The winner school um, actually had all seven of the research-supported um, policy planner agreements that I'm going to talk about, uh, strategies that I'm going to talk about today. Sorry, just a bit distracted. Um, great, we got it back. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for the excellent technical work you're doing down there. Much appreciated. She's keeping us afloat. She's awesome. All right, so um, we found that um, only two schools um, across the 34 policy plan and agreement documents were thinking about that relationship with the home. And as you know, building that relationship with the home, particularly as children are in high school, I'm not saying that the relationship with the home should be the one that you know, ends at the end of primary school because if we want them to keep reading in, in high school, if we can build that relationship and that discussion and that working together in a partnership, regardless of the socioeconomic setting where our schools are, to the best of our ability, it's going to be really beneficial for our students according to the research. But only two of the 34 schools had given consideration to this in their policy plan or agreement documents. So um, less than a third of the documents had any consideration of reading engagement, and only one of the 34 schools had thought about both home and school reading engagement. So now I'm going to jump right into the practical research supported strategies that were included by the schools. Uh, I start out with a big kind of dump of research, but don't panic when you see that because if you want to get into it, um, you can always go to the research gate and just get my papers for free, as I mentioned before. So I'm not going to you know, go too deeply into the research, but it's there so you can see it. We know um, the first strategy I want to talk about is shared reading. This um, could be you reading aloud to the students, or the students reading aloud to you, or another um, teacher or a parent. Um, and we know that there's a strong association between this and benefit across um, a range of literacy indicators, and that is absolutely beneficial in high school. It's not a primary school thing. And I'm going to share later on some amazing research that recently came out of the UK. It's a 2018 um, study that found massive gains for struggling adolescent readers who are read to in high school um, for reading comprehension, which I know is a bugbear for many schools to really tackle the issues that we experience with our students in reading comprehension to get them up to where they need to um, in, in terms of their literacy attainment. So of all the schools, five schools um, mentioned using shared reading as a strategy. Um, then we've got independent silent reading. Now, I would love to think that everyone here at, at every school has got independent silent reading implemented for their students. Um, but regardless of whether or not these 34 schools were implementing them at a school level, only four schools mentioned this in the policy planner agreement documents. And it's really, really important that, that we do um, employ this strategy because we know that the time that we spend reading is associated to literacy, with literacy benefit, as I discussed at the beginning. Then there's the importance of modelling. Um, we had four schools talking about that. And when I'm talking about modelling here, we know that many of our students are not going back to homes where there's someone in the house that loves reading. They need to see, I'm not talking about modelling as in explicit modelling as in, you know, now let's pause for a minute and check that we understood that. I'm not talking about that kind of modelling. I'm talking about, oh my God, the book that I got on the weekend was so amazing that I am now massively, massively exhausted, but at least I know who killed everyone. You know, that kind of, it is something that is so central to my existence. I forgot to eat and I think my children may have moved out of home. 
So it's that building of this idea and also it's not just modelling the enjoyment of reading, but also the strategies that we use. My research has found that children in primary and high school really struggle to choose books and that we do the best we can as libraries when we've got access to students to promote those skills. But just modelling the process that we go through once we've finished a great book to find the next really wonderful book is really important. Shared discussion about books, absolutely crucial for building a positive social atmosphere towards reading for pleasure. Four of the 34 schools discuss this. Access to books, as librarians you're really uh, central to providing that and we know about the association between access to books and literacy outcomes. Three of the 34 schools mention this. And uh, providing a conducive environment to reading. Again, we know that many of our students will go home and be involved in paid employment, sibling care, caring for their parents in many cases or other activities, cross-curricular, co-curricular, whatever. They're doing a lot of stuff and they don't necessarily have an environment that's conducive to reading at home anyway. So again, why it's so important that we provide that environment at school. Responsive to, to students' interests, one of the 34 schools thought about that and this is where we, we know our kids and we connect them to books that they will find meaningful for them to promote their reading. All right, I know I'm running out of time. Great. So we're going to get there. The snail is caffeinated and it's ready to go. So the silent reading, it's an issue. Um, the 2013 paper found that as students move from year 8 to year 10, we drop from 65% to 13% having this opportunity. So it is definitely an issue in our high schools. Our year 10s still need to have literacy skills. They're going to need them for year 11 and 12. So use this research, wave it at people, get it happening if you can. It should not be treated as an optional extra and this is where it sits. If something more important comes up, off it goes to the side. All right, so um, I've got a paper um, that deals with this, but also my upcoming book deals with best practice in this, but you can get the paper for free. You don't have to buy the book. I probably, hopefully, oh, damn it, this is being recorded. Okay, yes, you should definitely all buy the book, but also it's available in the paper too. All right, um, I've got some considerations from the, um, the students that kind of reflected about the importance and, and their enjoyment of reading, and I'm just going to briefly go through these because I'm running out of time. But, for example, the first one talks about... In, I love it because you can just read like everyone else sort of thing. That's one of the things they like about reading in the silent reading context. And, you know, having the opportunity to put books back um, and the last student comments on, you know, noticing that some of the peers around him were not reading anywhere else apart for pleasure than in silent reading opportunity at school. It wasn't happening anywhere else. So this was their chance. And I've spoken to students who said, yeah, this is actually the only time I read. And I actually really like it when I do it, but I, I just don't have time to do it anywhere else because of my employment in many cases. All right, so crucial, we don't stop reading aloud to them, as I mentioned before. Um, this UK study found that your average everyday mid middle level performing student made 8.5 months progress on reading comprehension, which is really amazing, but the struggling readers made 16 months progress. And this was as a result of educators reading two novels in a row back to back to their students and not pausing every two seconds to say, 
Now let's all feel the feels, or let's talk about the nouns we were just exposed to. No, they just got cracking into it. And across the sessions, there was a quick recap, so we all got on the same page if someone was sick or, or missed a session, and we could all be on the cliff waiting for their dastardly deed to occur, or, or so on and so forth. These were challenging books. The educators, many of them talked about being kind of terrified to implement this intervention in their schools because it doesn't look like learning. Children are enjoying. We're all sitting there listening and we're, you know, on the edge of our seats and it's not purposefully educative. And yet, 16 months progress for the struggling readers. Uh, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at programs that are going to magically turn it around. I would be very surprised to see any money you could throw at a program that could give you 16 months progress. All right, reading aloud at home, this is the stuff I was talking about before. Um, you should be aware that um, it's finishing too soon. So this means that you're getting children coming through from primary school that haven't really been read to very much. Um, and for example, the, the study we did in reading aloud found that less than 4% of children in years one to three were being read to by their teacher every day, according to the children, and less than a quarter were being read to often. So it's not something we can, we can assume that students have been exposed to before we get them. These are grades one to three, and of course it becomes even more dire from grades four to six. So you absolutely can and should use this as a strategy in your schools. We also know that as children move through um, the years of school, they don't necessarily understand that reading remains important. So to wrap up, the policy planner agreement document that your school needs to have, if you're serious about making this happen, is it needs to recognise the contribution of reading engagement to literacy outcomes. And it's going to be something that you're going to need to trumpet around a little bit to make sure we're all on board with. Um, it's going to need to include research-supported strategies. The amount of schools that said, we are going to buy these educational packages and this will lead to these positive outcomes... It's like, no, you can't just throw money at it. It's going to magically happen. Let's actually look at the research and base it on the research, the strategies that we employ. It's more likely to be successful um, because there's so often very little evidence around benefit of the things that we buy. And um, where there is evidence, it's often massively conflicted with the conflict of interest of you know, the, the evidence that's been gathered by the people who made the product. So we've got these awesome rectangles in our libraries that are also really, really good books. And we know that there's associated benefit of reading them. So yes, don't be afraid to say, no, we should not pay $20,000 for the next newfangled app that's gonna magically turn them into magnificent readers. We have a library, why don't you spend $20,000 on putting awesome new books in there? Or letting me buy some sofas so the kids can flop around and read. These are the sorts of arguments I'm hoping that you can take away um, from my presentation today. I'm all about flopping around and reading. You're probably gathering that. Um, we need to think about the roles of home and school, clear and achievable goals and indicators for improving reading engagement, thinking about strategies across disciplines, and thinking about struggling readers, I could talk for an entire another three hours about how to meet their needs. We run out of time. And also being ready to be a strong advocate and um, challenge misconceptions. Here's a pile of papers that are relevant that I've done in 2018. They're all peer reviewed. They're available on my research gate. This is the book that's coming out in December, 10% off on pre-order. 
Good, that's being recorded. And if you've got any questions, you can get in touch with me. Here's the ResearchGate link. If you enjoyed this session and want to hear more about my research with teacher librarians, I'm doing the keynote at the Australian School Library Association um, Biennial Conference next year in Canberra. Thank you very much. Don't go away, Margaret. <laughs> now, I know everyone in this room knows the importance of reading engagement, but I really want to truly say, Margaret, it is so very important for us to have an active Australian academic working in this space. And so if you could join me, please, in thanking Margaret. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.